and welcome to Actions for Nature. In this episode, we're exploring demanding more for nature. We know nature is in trouble, and it's not just a threat for future generations. We feel the impact of the extraction, exploitation and commodification of land, labour and nature. We're in the midst of the sixth mass species extinction. To meet our global goal to keep our rising temperature increase below 1.5 degrees, we have to reverse existing damage. For the adaptation and survival of humanity, we have to prioritize not only the protection of nature, but also the restoration, while keeping social justice at the core of our decision-making. Through an intersectional lens, we can recognize the connections between environmental injustice and neo-colonialism, racism, homophobia, misogyny, and xenophobia. Our demands can be focused and directed and can create solutions that are holistic. We know our voice is needed, but who needs to hear us? Across society, we can mobilize, guide, and inspire decision-makers. We can give leaders the courage needed to deliver the world we know is possible. This episode will explore how you can refocus the priorities of policymakers, businesses, and institutions. We'll be asking elect officials how we can collaborate to make change happen. So, we have some concerns. Where do we take them? Jess David is a councillor for Moorlands Ward in Bath and North East Somerset. She's also cabinet assistant for their neighbourhood portfolio, which covers parks, green spaces and flood risk. Jess talks to us about where to start. I think firstly, get in touch. All politicians want to hear from their residents. So yeah, absolutely get in touch and share your concerns and where possible, make suggestions and give ideas. I think the other thing I'd say is that a lot of politicians are generalists. We might not have specialist expertise. You might know more than we do about you know, certain aspects of the environment. So provide evidence where you can, provide examples and be as constructive as you can, make suggestions. In general, you know, councillors are happy to hear from our residents anytime. You know, that's what happens and that's what we expect. So if you're already in touch with an officer about like an operational issue, you know, whether it's managing your local park or dealing with something that you've already dealt with an officer, by all means, carry on the conversation with them. But if it's a new issue, a good way in is to go in via your councillor. Or if it's a kind of policy or strategic issue that you want your council to change, you want them to do something different, again, contact your councillor. And you may also want to work with different members of the council, depending on their role. So quite often cabinet members will receive correspondence from all across the authority from people on issues. You may also want to work cross-party as well. I think it's often really helpful to build a a cross-party consensus on the environment because, you know, it doesn't have to be all politically driven. So personally, I find emails useful because you've got a, a record of your correspondence and that provides a good starting point. And then obviously, you know, directly speaking with someone or, or a group of individuals about an issue is, is the best way. Social media is fine, but it's very public, can be very kind of showboaty and, and not everybody uses it. I think that's the other thing. Some people, especially over the last couple of years, don't feel comfortable using Twitter. So it's, it's not always the best way to get across your concerns, I don't think. It has a role, but I think establishing a dialogue with your councillors is the, is the best way forward. Start by email and try and talk, meet them face to face. Any councillor is going to be interested in anything in their ward. You know, we all feel a, a strong sense of kind of ownership over our ward. So, for example, in mine, there's lots of springs and we've got a, a play park with a, a kind of little stream running through it. 
loads of people use that and I'm, I'm very interested anyone who's got ideas or, or concerns about how that park operates as long as you you're tying it to the interest of your of the council you're you're contacting it's either in their patch or in their portfolio something that they're dealing directly with I think petitions can be really useful for showing a broad level of support on an issue. And I'd say the more specific the petition is, the more useful it is. It can be difficult for politicians themselves to sign up to petitions because obviously you've only got one text that everyone's signing up to. And, you know, you may not completely agree with the way it's worded, but they are useful for for generating a big number of evidencing a, a load of support on an issue. For example, over the last couple of years, we've had a few petitions in Baines that have been quite influential, for example, on some of our leisure services. Also on planning applications, you frequently get petitions expressing people's level of concern on an issue. So, yeah, they can be useful, but I'd say they're part of the picture. They're not the be all and end all. And, and again, I'd go back to that point that the, the most important thing is establishing a constructive dialogue. You know, all councillors and all council administrations are based around people who actually are trying to do the right thing for their local area. And the best thing you can do is establish a good working relationship and not make it too adversarial. To everyone that's interested in the local environment, you know, please do get involved. Please do challenge your local councillors on issues. And that plays a really important part of, of moving forward, you know, what we're doing in local authorities. So please do provide constructive challenge, make suggestions and provide evidence examples from elsewhere where you can. And then I think, again, that last point, you know, please do work with politicians across the political spectrum because that really helps. Jess spoke about the power of challenging decision makers with suggestions. And it starts by beginning a dialogue. Thangam Debonair is the Labour MP for Bristol West. She's been a member of Parliament since 2015 and is currently the role of shadow leader of the House of Commons. She says, as a member of the opposition, her job is to scrutinise the government. She demystifies the different routes to starting constructive dialogue with our representatives. The biggest advice I'd have is never think it doesn't matter to tell your MP or your councillor or any elected representative what you think or how you feel. That doesn't mean that they will immediately go, aha, now I've just had that letter slash email slash phone call. I will now change my mind about everything. We take a lot of information into account. We have to consider a large number of people. We have to consider evidence. We have to consider what experts are telling us. We have to consider what conflicting advice we're getting from experts. But never think it doesn't matter because it really does make a difference to my understanding of what concerns the people that I represent. I happen to represent a very, very large number of people, way above the average, almost twice the size of most constituencies or the size they're supposed to be. So I represent about 135,000 people. And I also represent people who are very politically engaged, which is a great thing. And therefore, people use every method that there is, including having a chat with me on the street, which I love, by the way. My favourite method, I have to say, of being able to talk to people I represent is just on either when I'm out door knocking, which until recently we haven't been allowed to do because of COVID. And also just, just, you know, if you catch me in the shops, you catch me on the street, catch me out and about, stop me for a chat. The best way to contact your MP, the most effective and reliable is by email. A letter takes a very long time to get to me because it now goes through all sorts of different security systems, both coming into the House of Commons, then back out of the House of Commons, and then through the security system back in Bristol. But when it's 
best to contact an MP rather than a local councillor. Ask yourself, is this something that the council deals with or is it something that government deals with? Now, government, I'm not in government. I'm in the Her Majesty's official opposition, which means I'm a member of the second largest political party in Parliament. My job is to scrutinise the government and my job is also as part of the team to offer an alternative. So if you think it's something that you're not happy with the government about, it's best to contact your MP. If it's something that's going on locally, where the local councillors or mayor take the decision, it's usually best to contact the local councillor. But I'm always happy to take those questions and if necessary, refer them on. So if what you want is to make sure that as your MP, I know what you think, then clicking on a petition is a really good way for me to get quantitative data. It doesn't give me anything qualitative. It doesn't tell me how you feel. It tells me that you've clicked on a petition and that therefore you're probably broadly in agreement with the content of that petition. I must say I have hundreds and hundreds of people clicking on petitions in Bristol West every day. And the petition website, you may not realise it, and some people don't when they get a response from me, they're sometimes quite surprised, that if it's about national policy, that triggers an email to your MP. So I will have hundreds of identical emails every day, which is how I know they're, they're from petition clicks. And if that happens, I, I do see them. I get sighted them once a week. One of my staff, my parliament, my researcher, will show me all the petitions that have come in, not each, in, like if there's 106, on badges. I won't see all 106. I'll see one because they're identical or, or that or thereabouts. And we will agree how I will respond. I do have some help in responding to them because, as I said, I have hundreds of petitions and I mean hundreds of different petitions and within that hundreds of people clicking on each petition. So I have help with that. Tweets, I don't find a particularly efficient method of lobbying me on anything. There's a limit to the number of characters for a start on people if they want to get into a debate. If I see if I see 60 identical tweets, it will have very little impact on me other than thinking that's 60 tweets that either, what do I do? Do I now reply to them instantaneously or do I reply to one? And if I reply to one, then will the other 59 I'd be frustrated that I didn't reply to all of them? If MPs spent all their time on Twitter, I think constituents would rightly be really annoyed. So I don't don't do that. I go on Twitter once, maybe twice a day, and it's usually for putting out information about something that I'm doing. things that you send in, they help inform what I then represent into the collective decision making and discussion that takes place in all political parties, whether it's Liberal Democrats, Greens, Labour, Scottish National, Tories, Plaid. We all have these discussions where we will discuss what our position might be on a particular amendment or a particular bill. And in the end, we will come to a decision and it may not always be the one that you lobbied me about, but it doesn't mean your views aren't worth representing to me. It means that there are other views as well. It means that there's other evidence. It means that you might be right at some point, but at the moment it's not going to be possible for us to prioritise. There'll be all sorts of reasons. I always try to explain these in blogs, which I then post on social media. I don't always satisfy everyone, but I don't think any MP can. But what I try to do is make sure that I have routes to take into account all the different ways that you make your views known. My final thought is that I don't know many MPs, I can think of a couple, but I don't know many of any party 
who don't go into being an MP without wanting to serve the people that they represent. It's an incredible job. It's an incredible privilege, but it's also an, an enormous amount of work. We have to cover every possible policy topic. So whether it is the environment, which is the reason we're here today, I might be discussing the environment one minute and then dentistry the next. So MPs will go around lots and lots of different subjects and we'll always try our best to cover in depth what you feel strongly about. But sometimes we might be focused on something else, a particular point. We might have particular roles in Parliament that are useful. So, for instance, if you email me, be aware that I'm not on the Environmental Audit Committee, but my neighbouring MP, Kerry McCarthy, has, has been on the Environmental Audit Committee for years and is a fount of knowledge and wisdom about what's going on there. So my last thought is this, don't ever give up on democracy. It's worth it. It's I am constantly proud of how democratic our country is. And of course, it's a work in progress. We can definitely make it more democratic, more accessible, more engaging. But please don't hold back from engaging with it because that's what makes democracy better. It's what makes, makes democracy worthwhile. And any public servant, and MPs are public servants, should, and in my view, would welcome them. Bangham spoke about protecting and valuing democracy. How do we harness democracy across sectors? How do we extend our individual action and amplify our impact? Steve Hind is the policy and media manager of not-for-profit City to Sea. They run people-powered community-serving campaigns to stop plastic pollution at source. He was also recently elected councillor at Stroud District Council. Steve talks to us about City to Sea and the theory of change. I think the engagement with the elected representatives is one part of a much bigger, wider theory of change. So what your elected representatives are, is they're your gateway, they're your linchpin into system change, into the structural change that we want to see at policy level and at Westminster. And what City to Sea do, which I think is quite unique, is that they combine theories around personal behaviour change with that of structural and systemic behaviour change. So lots of people, and George Monbiot is a really good example of this, he says, you know, what's the point of this small scale consumerist rubbish? What's the point of people doing that? And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who want to live completely pure lifestyles. You've got people who want to lead by example, really show that something's really possible to be done. And I think City to Sea offer a very pragmatic theory of change about how we can influence people through our day-to-day lives, through our own individual decisions, but how that plays into much bigger and much wider systemic change. So I'll give you a good example. Um, One of our first campaigns was called Switch the Stick. Now, this came about because our founder, Natalie Fay, was walking on the banks of the Avon just outside of Bristol. And she saw what looked like these small little lollipop sticks, little plastic sticks. And she was walking and thinking, like, how could these end up on the riverbanks of the River Avon? And close to inspection, they revealed themselves to be the little cotton plastic cotton bud sticks that people have in their bathrooms. As a direct result, people were flushing these directly down the loo and they were going through filters and they were going directly out into our waterways. So this was a form of plastic. Plastic pollution that was directly polluting our natural environment. 
Natalie being Natalie then thought, you know, what can I do about it? And she started this campaign, Switch to Stick. It was a very simple ask. It was asking all major retailers to switch from plastic cotton buds to paper or cardboard cotton buds that would break down in the natural environment. And, you know, launched a petition, got nearly a quarter of a million signatures. And slowly all of the major supermarkets came on board. And this was very much so driven through individuals. It was a grassroots campaign, choosing to make an individual change in their own individual lifestyle, you know, refusing to buy plastic cotton bud sticks. And then business came on board slowly one after another. All the major supermarkets in the UK made a pledge to stop selling plastic cotton bud sticks. And the result is it's, I think, quite impressive. It, we're talking about four, over 400 tonnes of plastic a year being saved. And especially when you think that this is plastic, that disproportionately ends up in our natural environment. And then what we've seen through the European Union single use directive and then followed up by legislation here in the UK is the actual banning of these now. So from July this year in 2021, all across member states, they need to have national legislation in place that bans the selling of cotton bud sticks alongside a whole load of other things like plastic cutlery, plastic straws and things like that. So what started off as a as a groundswell, a campaign from here in Bristol has moved from individuals leading the way to then being taken up by business that then is, is often actually more dynamic and quicker to react than government is, that we're reflecting those consumer needs. And then we had ultimately then government at a supranational level with the European Union and then the UK government following suit, banning a really problematic piece of single use plastic. So then there's the campaign of Refill, which is perhaps City to Sea's most well-known campaign. This is a geolocated app that tells you where you can refill. Uh, Originally, it was just for water bottles, but it's since expanded into where you can eat, drink and shop using less plastic. So it will tell you where your nearest zero waste shop is, where your nearest water fountain is, where your nearest restaurant that will happily offer you refillable water in your water bottle or will accept reusable containers for their takeaway food and things like that. And there's an interesting story I think behind Refill. So it was founded in 2015 here in Bristol. It was seed funded when Bristol was the European Green Capital for the year and since then it has really grown to incredible heights. So we're now talking about hundreds of thousands of places across the world are now logged on this app where you can refill, where people will be directed to refill. It's translated into nine different languages. It works all across the world in different countries from from all all over over the world and we think that it's already safe a hundred million pieces of plastic which is an incredible impact and again I just want to touch on the overlap between individual behavior change and that of wider system change so it's very much so about trying to inspire an individual behavior change so it's about trying to make it easier and more comfortable for somebody to carry a reusable water bottle and to go into a bar and ask for it to be refilled and it enables people to then take these individual actions that then build up into something really collective and something I quite often say to people is just anecdotal Totally. Think back to sitting in a cafe five, ten years ago. You'll picture in your head a number of single-use plastic water bottles on the table in front of people as they're typing on their laptop, as they're sat reading a book. It will be single-use plastic water bottles. And now fast forward that to today, and you think how many people will sit there with reusable water bottles in front of them? It's becoming the norm. And so what you do as an individual, when you decide to take these individual behavior changes, when you decide, for example, to carry a reusable 
reusable water bottle, you're not only just saving the plastic that you would otherwise be using if you bought a single-use plastic bottle, but you're also being an ambassador. You're also creating a norm. So humans are, in our deepest psychology, herd animals, right? We like to do what other people are doing. We like to fit in. And I think when people are making these small individual decisions and showing it to be not only painless, but also economically advantageous and environmentally advantageous as well, when people are taking these actions, they then become ambassadors, they then become influencers to those around them. Whether they realise it or not, their friends will be subconsciously taking note of it, their family will be subconsciously taking note of it. And what we've seen through the refill campaign is just a cumulative gathering of pace. And I think that's part of this behaviour change theory. And as a result now, because of this, again, this groundswell of individuals wanting to make small changes in their behaviour and carry reusable water bottles, we've now got huge chains. So we're talking about McDonald's, Costa Coffee, all signing up to the refill app because they want to be part of this movement. And anyone who hasn't already, get involved, download the refill app. And it's a real chance to be to play your part, to be a cog in that system change that we're working towards. So if anyone wants to get involved with City to Sea's campaigns particularly, you can Google City to Sea and you can find our website. And on that page, we have a whole load of campaigns that we're running from refill and switch to stick that I've already mentioned, but we also do stuff around plastic-free periods. There's loads of advice on there about plastic-free living. So every aspect of your life, you can think about how you can be being that ambassador, be, be that living witness of how you want to change your life. But also a particular shout out on the 16th of June coming up, we've got World Refill Day happening. So this is a global day of action where we're seeing individuals going out and we're asking people to go out armed with their reusable water bottle, reusable coffee cups, reusable Tupperwares. And we're asking people to go out and really show that part of the recovery as we come out of the pandemic is about putting reusables back on the menu this summer. I love that Steve spoke about us being ambassadors of change. At the time, it may not feel transformative, but it's never just one letter, one signature on a petition, one vote, one conversation. It's one of many. Your choice contributes to something so much bigger. We are in motion together. We are ambassadors of change with the power to influence and lead the transformation. Let's inspire our decision makers to act with courage by beginning dialogues and communicating our need for change. With a holistic approach, we can reimagine a world that is regenerative, equitable and inclusive. What change do you want to see? Let's find a focus, be proactive and be loud in demanding more for nature. You've been listening to the Demand More episode of Actions for Nature. The guest speakers were Jess Davids, Thangan Debonair and Steve Hind. The podcast was narrated by Ella Trudgeon and edited by Keziah Wenham Kenyon. And the music was produced by Ketza. Brought to you by Bristol Natural History Consortium. You can check out the rest of the Festival of Nature celebrations by heading to www.festivalofnature.org.uk or by following the hashtag Fest of Nature 21.